college is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time listening, the Magnus Podcast is produced by the Albertus Magnus Institute. Named after St. Albert the Great, the Universal Doctor, we believe that a liberal arts education should be accessible to everyone. So with that end, we offer the Magnus Fellowship in which we offer free, tuition-free courses rooted in the great books and liberal arts and taught by some of the liberal arts' greatest minds and thinkers and professors and PhDs. We're just now wrapping up our summer courses where we offered a course on Plato's Republic and a course on John Henry Newman's idea of a university. So today on the podcast, please enjoy the first lecture from the course on Plato's Republic, taught by Dr. Pavlos Papadopoulos from Wyoming Catholic College. And this is what one of the fellows had to say about the course. Mr. Papadopoulos is one of the best teachers I have ever had. He is a master at leading discussion and synthesizing everyone's comments. I look forward to having him as a professor again. So we hope you enjoy this first lecture. If you do, head to the Magnus Institute, become a fellow, join the fellowship, magnusinstitute.org for more. Enjoy. This is a text that I, I love deeply and have, have taught many times and have, have learned from, and I feel like I, I continue to learn from every time uh, I teach it and, and read it. Um, I'll give you a sense of what we're going to do today and then what we're going to do in the future. I'd like to do something different today than I'm going to do on a regular basis. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time today in this session lecturing to introduce the text as a whole and to sort of guide us through book one. That, however, will not be my normal practice. So today I'm going to spend a good part of time lecturing and then sort of open things up for responses to what I've said, questions, or um, any expression of desire to go to places in the text that we didn't touch on or that didn't make sense. Um, But my normal practice starting next week will be, we'll start our course, I will solicit from you in the first few minutes, questions that you might have, and then I'll have my own questions, and I'll I'll take us through that in a really in a discussion manner. But today is going to be unusual. It's going to be much more lecture heavy to try to sort of orient us. Um, I'll I'll begin then by noting um, my interest in this text. Uh, first, there are certain universal themes, universal reasons for being interested in the Republic. It immediately or almost immediately starts to pose questions about what justice is, how we should live. Uh, Pretty soon we'll get into the the nature of the soul um, and of the good life and and many other topics that any thoughtful human being anywhere in any time and place uh, has to be concerned with. And so all of those apply to to my own interest uh, in the Republic. I'm also going to say something about a maybe more peculiar interest that I have or have come to have in this text, which I'll I'll mention now, and we won't really talk about it for a number of weeks, but um, I will try to preview this interest. Um, there's a kind of historical interest uh, that I have in the Republic and that I hope you will come to have in the Republic as well. And I don't mean the sort of narrow political history of classical Greece, classical Athens, as, as interesting as that is. 
Uh, I mean a more momentous world historical event that this text, I think, anticipates, um, namely the end of the ancient city, the end of the ancient pagan polis. Um, there's a wonderful book that we're not going to be reading or discussing called The Ancient City by uh, Numa Denis Fustel de Coulange, uh, an 1864 book by a French um, uh, classicist historian who gives an account of the ancient city of the Mediterranean, of Greece, and of Rome as a fundamentally religious institution. And his account ends uh, with Rome, but goes through Greece and ends with Rome and with sort of the decadence of the ancient city preparing for the coming of Christianity and um, intellectual movements, political, military movements, but also this kind of spiritual movement that, that makes possible um, the spread of Christianity so rapidly through, through the Roman Empire. And I have come over the years to read the Republic more and more as a really surprising anticipation of, of the incarnation and of the spread of Christianity. Um, another way to put it, it might not be just an anticipation. It might be because St. Augustine, when he wrote um, The City of God about seven or 800 years after the Republic, St. Augustine himself, who helps explain the coming of, of Christ and the spread of Christianity and the rise of the city of God and the city of man, he himself was deeply influenced by Plato. And so perhaps I've just got the Augustinian account sort of seeping back into Plato. But nevertheless, the reason I make this suggestion is that I think the Republic is, one of its great themes is the end of the city, the end of the Greek polis. Um, and end means can mean at least two different things. It could mean purpose, the goal, and telos, purpose of, of something. So what is the purpose of the city? That is an explicit theme of the Republic. But I think it also winds up considering and in a way anticipating the end of the ancient city, sort of the collapse of the legitimacy of the ancient polis. That's something that I'll try to argue when we look at book one, um, and I, I take us through book one. Uh, and so I uh, I find this to be uh, a universally interesting text, but also one that speaks in perhaps surprising ways to the concerns of Christians or just any of us who are living in a Christian or post-Christian era and who need to sort of consider what what the role of politics is in, in the Christian era or in the post-Christian era. Um, now, one other preliminary remark uh, about my method, and this was in uh, the course description, but I'll just reiterate it. Um, my goal in this class is to read this text as a dramatic and literary work, as well as a philosophical work. Um, and the very simple way of introducing this idea and this approach is that Plato wrote dialogues, not treatises. He did not sit down and put pen to paper or papyrus and say, um, I am Plato and here are my thoughts and here are my arguments. He instead constructed narratives, um, almost always about Socrates, in this case about Socrates, and indeed in this case narrated by Socrates. The entire text that we are going to be reading is the words of Socrates to some audience. So we never really find out who the audience is, but the whole thing is a narration by Socrates. Socrates sometimes shares his thoughts about the conversation as it's unfolding. He describes characters. There are characters in the text in the first place, unlike in a in a conventional treatise where the author is just laying out uh, his arguments and and his perspective. 
And so I think to really come to terms with Plato, we need to read him, his text as a dialogue that has characters in it, that has a setting that um, displays personal relationships among the characters, that has events or action or drama within the text as you go from one page to another. Thrasymachus starts sweating, right? It's the middle of summer and he gets he gets sort of flustered at a certain point. And, and uh, we also hear of um, the slave at the beginning grabbing Socrates's cloak. All of these things become quite significant the more you look at them. They aren't just window dressing to make you interested in a philosophical argument. The way Plato writes, it winds up being uh, the argument and the action of the dialogue are complementary. And you really need to look at one and then look back at the other and then look, book at, look back at the first to, to see what he's up to. Okay, with, with that in mind, I'm now going to proceed into um, my lecture, and it has three big parts. Um, I'm going to say something, uh, just introducing the Republic as a whole. I'm then going to take a very close look at the opening scene, and I'm then going to take us on um, a sort of tour of book one with a focus on the drama, with a focus on the action, the events, and the relationships of book one. So preliminarily, um, I want to say something about the dramatic context of the Republic. And the dramatic context refers to when the dialogue is set, when the when it's supposed to take place. And we can say, uh, roughly, it's supposed to take place at some time in the, the last few decades of the Athenian Empire, towards the end of the Athenian Empire. Over the course of the 5th century BC, Athens rose to be um, a power competing with Sparta in leading the different Greek cities having pushed back the Persian invasion that Herodotus describes at the very beginning of the 5th century, Athens and Sparta eventually built up alliance networks, somewhat like NATO and the Warsaw Pact or something of that kind, and were in a cold war for a period of time, and then a hot war, which ended in 404 BC, the very end of the, the 5th century, with uh, Sparta's victory, uh, with uh, the the, the defeat of Athens and the imposition on Athens of an oligarchic regime called the 30, 30 men of pro-Spartan sympathy ruling Athens at ha having overthrown the imperial democracy that, um, that had dominated Athenian history and dominated the Greek world for much of the, the fifth century. And so this um, dramatic context winds up uh, influencing the way that Plato uh, writes uh, writes the Republic and winds up, he winds up referring to it um, in many, in many cases, uh, in many ways. One of those is the location of the dialogue. The dialogue takes place in the Piraeus, which is the port of Athens. Athens is a little bit inland uh, from, from the sea and is, is, is up on a height. And so Socrates says, I went down, I went down, literally downhill down from the Athens, from the height of Athens, down to the Piraeus on the coast um, yesterday. He went down. Why is the Piraeus significant? Uh, Athens is an imperial power, and it's an imperial power because it's a naval power. So it is a naval empire. And so the Piraeus, where this conversation takes place, is sort of the symbol of Athenian imperial power. Um, and it, it might have other connotations as well, which we could get into, but at a minimum, this conversation takes place in uh, the location in the house of Cephalus down in the Piraeus, where, which we'll call to mind of 
uh, all of his um, Plato's writers, uh, Plato's readers, uh, will call to mind Athenian imperial power and all of the questions that emerged in the course of Athenian uh, imperial history. Uh, now, as I mentioned, one of those questions is uh, uh, the status of Athens after its defeat. After Sparta defeats Athens, Sparta imposes the 30, the rule of the 30, which come to be known as the rule of the 30 tyrants. Uh, they, their rule does not last long. They're overthrown in less than a year. Democratic forces come back into the city. There's a civil war and the 30 are overthrown. Uh, now, why is all of this interesting for us in reading the Republic? The 30 who ruled in Athens during that oligarchic regime were divided into the 20 in Athens and the 10 in Piraeus. And when you look at the cast of characters of this dialogue, and if you have the Bloom uh, edition, he has on the very first page a list of dramatis personae, which is, which is convenient. Uh, and if you don't, you can sort of look at the first few pages and see the names crop up. If you look at the, the, the dramatis personae, you notice that there are, are 11 of them, which is to say that there are Socrates and 10 others. Or you could say there are 10 of them because it's Socrates and 10 others, and then Cephalus leaves, and so you add it up and it winds up being 10. So there's some kind of reference being made just in the number of characters between uh, the, the cast of characters and the 10 in Piraeus, uh, who are ruling in Piraeus as part of this oligarchic uh, regime imposed on, on Athens at the end of its empire during its, its sort of humil period of humiliation. Uh, this supposition that I'm putting forward is strengthened when you start looking at the specific uh, people who are uh, in this dialogue. To give a few examples, Polemarchus, who we meet on the very first page uh, and figures uh, uh, greatly in book one, he is actually a, a partisan of the democracy who is killed by the regime of the 30 during the civil war. Um, uh, Another, another of them, Euthydemus and Lysias, who do not speak, are Polemarchus's brothers. Carmantides, another of these fellows who does not speak, and yet his name is given, and it's important that he's there for some reason. Carmantides is actually the head of the Ten in Piraeus during the regime of the Thirty Tyrants. And so there are all of the, there are more examples. Uh, uh, Niceratus, who is the son of Nicias, he is also killed by the Thirty, um, and uh, Lysias, one of the brothers of Polemarchus, winds up prosecuting um, members of the 30 tyrants after their fall on behalf of his, his dead brother. So there are many references just through the cast of characters and the location to this great momentous tra traumatic event that happened recently in, in Athenian history that all of Plato's readers would, would immediately pick up on. Okay, uh, last sort of preliminary note that I'll make is just the title of the book. Uh, it's called the Republic, or is it? Uh, the Greek title is Politeia. Uh, this should sound like the word polis, which is the Greek word for city. Polis is city. Politeia could be translated as regime, uh, constitution, form of government. And so the title of this dialogue is regime, or the title is form of government or constitution, something like that. We will find out in the course of the argument that in Socrates' mind, this term, politeia, could be used to describe the ordering of a city, 
or the ordering of a human soul. And that will get very interesting in book two and three and, and afterwards. We're not there yet, but for now, the title that Plato has given to his, his dialogue is regime, this, this very important political term describing how a political society is ordered, who rules it, sort of the principles of organization within it. And that's something that Socrates will wind up saying is should be used as an analogy for, for the human soul uh, itself. Um, okay, that is all um, I'm going to say about sort of preliminary material. I'm now moving to the second part of my introductory lecture, where I want to look pretty closely at the opening scene of the Republic. And so what I really mean by the opening scene is everything before they actually get to the house of Cephalus, or the house of Polemarchus, the son of Cephalus. Um, and in the uh, this is 327a in the margin to 328b in the Bloom edition. It's the, it's the first page and a half or so. So the very first um, word of the dialogue, and I promise I'm not going to do every word, uh, the Republic is this kind of text where sometimes some professors are notorious for assigning it and then getting through like the first four books in an entire semester. We're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to we're going to go slowly through the, the first paragraph or so, and then we're going to get get to the rest. Um, but the first word in Greek is katabane, which is the verb I went down or I descended. It's the opposite of uh, anabasis, which is ascent or ascension. Katabasis is a descent from somewhere higher to somewhere lower. And it's even more special and uh, significant than that. If you read your Homer, if you read Homer's Odyssey, uh, this is the term katabasis, a descent, for not just any sort of trudging downhill, but Odysseus descending into the underworld. Um, and there, this is also the term used in Greek mythology for Heracles descending into the underworld and Orpheus descending. And so it's this very uh, loaded term. And so here we have Socrates saying, I went down as he narrates this dialogue to us. I went down to the Praeus yesterday with Glaucon, son of Ariston, to pray to the goddess. And so when, if you think about um, book 23 of the Odyssey in particular, if you go and look up book 23, um, Odysseus performed his katabasis in book 11. That's when he went down into, the, into Hades. And then later in book 23, he's back home with Penelope. And he says to her, he, he tells her about the day that I went down to the house of Hades, seeking a return, a nostos, seeking a return for my companions and myself. Uh, I think this is an intentional reference on the part of Plato to Homer to the Odyssey. Um, you could say that Odysseus made his descent to the underworld in search of a kind of wisdom or more precisely in search of a practical advice on how to live and how, and then he lived to tell the tale. How am I going to secure a return for myself and my companions home? That suggests that Socrates too is a hero like Odysseus performing a uh, uh, a heroic act, the sort of thing only a hero could do, going down into the underworld. It, descent, it suggests that the Piraeus is a kind of underworld or Hades, which is which is strange to think about. Maybe there are monsters down there like Thrasymachus that you need to confront and 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 defeat. Um, and so we should keep this this Homeric reference in mind. Uh, Amy, you've got your hand up. Yes. Um, I really would appreciate like if you could spell the Greek words because I that's kind of a thing for me. Like the what did you say, katabesis? 
eight. Kata basis. Um, so yeah, it's right there. Jonathan just put it correctly. Great. Uh, in, Thank you. In the chat. Thank you for that. Good. Um, okay. I'm, I'm going to proceed now to, we're moving from the first word to the, to the first paragraph. Okay. So we're making progress here. So I'll just, I'll just read this first paragraph and comment on it. I went down to the Piraeus yesterday with Glaucon, son of Ariston, to pray to the goddess. At the same time, I wanted to observe. This is the term, this is the, the, um, the Greek verb, uh, that, that we get theoria or theory from, sort of speculation in Latin, theory, observation. It's not just looking at, it, but it's like, it's a sort of very reverent, uh, or inquisitive looking at. I wanted to observe how they would put on the festival since they were now holding it for the first time. Now, in my opinion, the procession of the native inhabitants, the Athenians, was fine. That word fine is not just, eh, okay, it's fine, the same, like fine arts, beautiful or noble. Uh, the procession of the native inhabitants was fine, but the one the Thracians conducted was no less fitting a show. After we had prayed and looked on, again, sort of observed, we went off towards town. That is, we, we turned back to go back to uh, to Athens. Now, Socrates here gives an explanation for why he descended to the Piraeus, and he gives two reasons. Uh, he wanted to pray to the goddess, and he wanted to observe, or he went to pray to the goddess, and he also wanted to observe something and sort of pass judgment. Um, this is interesting because in ancient Athens, in all of these ancient pagan cities, there is not the kind of division between politics and religion that, that we are used to. There isn't a sort of church-state division. The gods are the gods of the city or the gods of some other city. Uh, and so going down to Piraeus to pray to the goddess is an example of Socrates performing his civic duty, doing his job as a citizen. And he's telling us in the very first sentence of this dialogue, I did my civic duty yesterday with everyone else. Um, this takes on more importance if you're familiar with Plato's Apology, where Socrates is put on trial and executed, actually put to death by Athens for, they accuse him, of not believing in the gods of the city. And so here he's saying, look, yesterday I went down to the Piraeus to pray to the goddess, to do my civic duty. Now it's strange because the goddess is a new goddess. And here it's the city is introducing new gods and goddesses into itself. Whereas the accusation that is made against the historical Socrates is that he was corrupt in the youth. He didn't believe in the gods of the city. In fact, he was introducing his own gods into the city. So here he has sort of strangely rebutted that accusal, that uh, accusation, uh, and actually turned it back upon the city itself. You're introducing new gods and I'm sort of going along with it. Okay. The second thing he says he did, or the second reason he went down to the Piraeus is because he wanted to observe. And these are sort of overlapping tasks, right? You go down to pray to the goddess, and as you do, you observe how the festival is being put on. Right here, Socrates has suggested uh, that he can be a good citizen and a philosopher, someone who observes at the same time in the same action. Um, all of this will gain sort of more weight and gravity as we move through the Republic, uh, as we see the tensions between what Socrates, the philosopher, uh, believes in and what the city believes in. And of course, that's that's everywhere else throughout throughout Plato's corpus, if you, if you read the Apology uh, and other dialogues. But right here, 
from the opening paragraph, we learn that Socrates presents himself as a good citizen of Athens and a pious one who is also able to satisfy his philosophic nature uh, at the same time as his civic duty. And we are reminded of the existence of the port of Piraeus as being not just the seat of the navy, but a port, which is where new and novel things happen and where sailors live. And sailors are not renowned for their um, moral character. No, I hope no one here is in the Navy, right? But there's sort of a kind of openness and, and vibrancy and cosmopolitanism. Lots of new and wild things are happening in ports. And it's here that, that Socrates goes and is arrested. Now, this is the third thing I want to say about the opening scene, which is the arrest of Socrates. The very next paragraph um, starts to describe Socrates being seized by the slave boy of Polemarchus. So he wants to go back. Socrates went down. Now he wants to go back up to Athens. And then Polemarchus, whose name means warlord. Uh, that's just literally what is he is the leader of uh, into war. He's the sort of guy in charge of a war band. Uh, someone named warlord sends his slave boy to lay hands on Socrates and actually physically restrain him. Um, and orders him to wait. Polemarchus orders you to wait. Uh, and Polemarchus and his boys show up. It's actually an indeterminate number. You've got Socrates is hanging out with Glaucon and they want to go back up to Athens. Polemarchus comes with Glaucon's brother Adamantus uh, with Niceratus, the son of Nicias. So there's three of them and some others. So you've got two, Socrates and Glaucon, versus more than three. It's this kind of indeterminate amount. And I think I think that's significant that the, the warlord has certainly more than the philosopher has. And it, it, it sort of just keeps extending more. You don't know how many more he has, but the point is he has slaves and friends that outnumber um, the philosopher. And this all might sound strange, the emphasis I'm placing on this, the, the way it all unfolds is quite playful, but it's also quite serious. So it's playful because of course, Polemarchus is just trying to invite him over for dinner. And the way he invites him over for dinner is saying like, we outnumber you, we could beat you up if you turn down our, our dinner invitation. So there's something playful here. Obviously he's friends with uh, the brother of Glaucon who is Socrates' friend. And yet this all takes on um, great significance when we look at, at the language that they use. Um, Polemarchus says, don't you see how many of us there are? either prove stronger than these men or stay here. And Socrates raises the possibility, another possibility. He says, couldn't, couldn't we instead persuade you that you must let us go? In other words, isn't it possible for speech to be in charge of force, for speech to direct violence and, and strength? And Polemarchus gives a very good answer. Could you really persuade if we don't listen? <laughs> uh, if speech and reason, rhetoric, or maybe even philosophy, if, if something rational is going to rule over human affairs, is going to rule over the warlords of the world who are in charge of bands of men and, and their slaves, uh, there's a kind of assent that needs to come from the strong, from the many, from the warlord, from Polemarchus. And there's a kind of impasse here which Adamantus breaks. Adamantus entices Socrates. Adamantus winds up uh, persuading Socrates by saying, there's going to be something weird that you've never seen happening. There's going to be at sunset, a torch race on horseback for the goddess. 
And Socrates says, what? How's that going to work? They're going to have torches and be on horseback. And I haven't seen that before. And what does that mean? So he sort of catches Socrates' uh, interest. Polemarchus affirms uh, that, that supposition of Socrates and says, there's going to be an all-night festival that will be worth seeing. And we'll get up after dinner and go to see it there at dinner. We'll be together with many of the young men and we'll talk. So stay and do as I tell you. Right there, Polemarchus held out the thing that Socrates might be really interested in, which is the opportunity to have a good conversation. They're going to go over to Polemarchus's house for dinner. And then the plan is to go out afterwards to this all-night festival and see the see the torch back, torch race on horseback for the goddess. As a spoiler, they never eat their dinner and they never go see the torch race. Uh, strange. What happens is <laughs> the ostensible reason for coming over to Polemarchus's house is to have a meal and then go to this festival. Instead, there's a kind of feast of speeches that re replaces um, the dinner that was going to be served. And there's something else that replaces going to see the torch race on horseback. Uh, Socrates then says, well, if it is so resolved, then that's how we must act. And as Bloom puts in his footnote, which his footnotes are very helpful, um, it is so, if it is so resolved is a kind of um, formula from the Athenian uh, assembly that, okay, that's the way the majority voted, so that's what we have to do. So right there, this arrest of Socrates episode wraps up, and it's a little bit ambiguous what has happened. Socrates stays in the Piraeus. Was he forced to stay or was he persuaded to stay? Was he, did he, did, was he actually converted to wanting to stay in the Piraeus or uh, was it a matter of a vote and you just have to obey the majority and it's sort of brute force um, channeled instead into sort of democratic means, but it winds up still being um, a kind of majority rule. Okay, uh, that is the arrest of Socrates. I now want to say something about um, book one as a whole uh, the drama of book one as a whole, uh, taking us uh, taking us through uh, the end of book one, but really just focusing on on certain uh, character uh, aspects of it. Now, as um, there are three main positions on justice given, uh, they're not quite three definitions. There's more than three definitions, but each of the characters that Socrates encounters is a little bit slippery and sort of changes his definition a few times and so on. But we get each cluster of de definitions associated with one man, one character, with the old man Cephalus, who is the head of the household. In fact, his name means head. That's what Cephalus means. Uh, the old man Cephalus, then his son Polemarchus, who we've already met, and then finally Thrasymachus, the foreign sophist or foreign teacher of wisdom, uh, who is who is there in the household and. And in the very next paragraph at 328b, we learn that there's a kind of cast of characters already hanging out at Polemarchus's house, including Thrasymachus. He's already there uh, in the household. Now, I'm going to suggest that these three characters, Cephalus, Polemarchus, and Thrasymachus, uh, embody three different aspects of the city, of the polis as such, or maybe of Athens in particular. Uh, I am going to suggest that Cephalus provides us an old man's very conservative definition of justice, and Cephalus sort of embodies um, that aspect of the city that is tradition, authority, 
sort of religious authority and religious tradition. Uh, when we meet him, he's like wearing a wreath. He's sitting on a cushion stool. He's he's crowned with a wreath, and he's he just came from performing some sacrifices, and then it's like it's just like incense coming off him. He like he after a few pages, he just goes off to the sacrifices again. So he's he's emerging from and returning to the sacrifices. He's the head of the household. He's like paternal and religious authority. He seems to embody that. And that's one, one aspect of the city. Now, what he himself says about justice uh, is in, in, in Socrates' formulation, it is telling the truth uh, and paying back one's debts. And I think this is a very common sense, conventional understanding of justice, one which Socrates, strangely, tries to tear apart and, and seems to succeed in tearing apart. Uh, this is justice according to an old and, as we learn in these few pages, an old and fearful man who is approaching the end of his life. Uh, it's an idea of justice that appeals to legal ideas of fairness and traditional ideas of piety, a position on justice that is anchored only or maybe primarily by fear of punishments by the gods in the afterlife, which is now very rapidly approaching for Cephalus. So after entering the house of Cephalus, Socrates is greeted by the old man who says that now that he's old, his desires for bodily pleasures have given way to his desire for intellectual pleasures. Socrates in, engages in a conversation asking Cephalus about the matter on which Cephalus is an authority, namely old age. And Cephalus is, is quite old. He's on the threshold of old age or the threshold of Hades. He's knocking on heaven's door or, so, or something like that. He's, he's, he's got one foot. Uh, in the grave. Cephalus reveals that now that he's really old, his thoughts have turned to death. His thoughts have turned to the prospect of being judged unfavorably by the gods and punished in the afterlife. And he even seems to suggest, although he, he doesn't ascribe it to himself directly, he suggests that when an old person, when a person becomes old, uh, he starts to take seriously the myths that he laughed at when he was a young man. He doesn't ascribe that position to himself, but um, it, it sounds awfully plausible that this is his position. He's coming from sacrifices, going towards sacrifices. He, he has made a lot of money in his life, and his idea of justice is, so long as I pay back all of my debts in life, and so long as I perform the right sacrifice to the gods, I won't have to have these nightmares anymore that I seem to be having every night, these terrifying nightmares. Um. As he says, it's good to be rich because if you're if you have a good character, uh, because it will allow you to avoid many occasions for vice. Cephalus says at three thirty one b, the possession of money contributes a great deal to not cheating or lying to any other man against one's will, and moreover to not departing for that other place, Hades, the afterlife, frightened because one owes some sacrifices to a god or money to a human being. From that statement, Socrates extracts the definition of justice and really turns the whole conversation to justice. He could have talked about money. He could have talked about aging. There are lots of topics out there, potentially. He makes the conversation about justice. Uh, Socrates, in a very strange way, dismantles this argument. He gives a kind of exception to the rule and then treats that exception to the rule as a refutation of the rule of justice. He says, uh, what if a friend leaves a weapon with you when he's sane, he comes back when he's insane. Do you need to tell him the truth about the weapon? Do you need to give him back his property? Oh, no. Okay, I guess that can't be what justice is. I don't know if you're satisfied by that. That's something we could come back to talk about. 
but he treats that as a refutation and Cephalus um, sort of moves on and, and fades into the sacrifices uh, in the background. Cephalus, uh, the head of the household who claimed now that he was old, he was a great lover of intellectual pursuits, withdraws at sort of the first challenge uh, in an intellectual um, uh, battle of a kind. This is a reminder that Cephalus's interest in being just as he understands it seems very much dependent on the fact that he's close to death and afraid of being punished by the gods. Polemarchus then enters, and Polemarchus is the son of Cephalus, and he inherits the argument from his father. And whereas Cephalus embodied the city as uh, religious, traditional, uh, something of an, an object of reverence uh, and, and authority, Polemarchus embodies, he gives a young man's definition of justice, and he really embodies the strength of the city. Again, going back to his name of, of warlord. Uh, his definition of justice, I would say, is justice according to a young citizen, a very political position on justice taken by a spirited, robust, self-assertive young man, a patriot, and a soldier. He indeed enters in a partisan way to defend his father's position, to, to, um, uh, which has been attacked by Socrates. And in doing so, he invokes a traditional authority, the poet Simonides, who says that it is just to give to each what is owed. Pressed by Socrates, Polemarchus then declares justice as the art of doing good to friends and harm to enemies. That's exactly the idea of justice you would want if you're at war. <laughs> you, the, the, the idea of justice you would want your young men who are soldiers to have if, if you are at war with a great enemy like Sparta. It's this eminently political, partisan, military definition, um, uh, the kind of politics that would appeal to a well-bred, spirited young man. It's a very patriotic definition, fighting to defend what what, what is one's own, and harming anyone who threatens one's, one's own. Socrates, though, refutes Polemarchus's uh, definition. Uh, first, he argues that justice, according to this definition, is useless and base. Uh, it depends on Socrates' comparison of justice to an art, a craft, or a skill, like medicine or cooking. Uh, justice, as Polemarchus understands it, seemed to apply just fine to the great emergencies of political life, war against a foreign enemy, but the just man, by this definition, is not very useful to his friends in peacetime or in domestic life. The expert in some specific field, not the just man, will always have the most relevant advice in a specific situation. Then, after showing the difficulty of knowing who one's true friends are, Socrates offers a second refutation of Polemarchus's view, arguing that it's never just to harm anyone. Justice can't har involve harming another because the true sense of harm is to make something a worse version of itself. And that is not the role of an art, and justice, Socrates thinks, is an art. If justice were to truly harm another person, it would mean making that person more unjust, and that would be a very strange effect of the art of justice. So Socrates concludes that the proverb of Simonides, it is just to give what is owed to each man, cannot be understood in the way that Polemarchus proposed as harming enemies, for it is never just to harm anyone. He then, and we are here at uh, 336a, Socrates concludes this discussion. Uh, with Polemarchus, having apparently undermined Polemarchus's commonsensical political warlike view that defines justice according to friends and enemies, he ends by suggesting that Polemarchus's definition of justice belongs to Periander, who is a tyrant, or to Perdiccas, who is a king, or to Xerxes, the Persian king of kings, the great enemy of, of, of Greece in the Persian Wars, or Ismenius of Corinth, a greedy man who sold out his city to the Persians during the last invasion. 
or Socrates says, to some other wealthy man who believed himself to have great power. In other words, Socrates has basically said that that conventional view of justice held by Polemarchus that centers on the political consideration of helping friends and harming enemies is basically the same as a tyrant's view of justice. He has performed this strange kind of ad hominem attack or association between this view and he asserts all this cast of, of rogues that he has just named. And he suggested that another view of justice would involve harming no one. And he's managed somehow also to make Polemarchus his ally in his position. Polemarchus says, we're going to do battle as partners against, against who, like all comers. All of that seems to provoke our last character, Thrasymachus, into entering the conversation. He explodes into the conversation like a wild beast. He flings himself at Socrates as if he's going to tear him apart. Thrasymachus is going to define justice as the advantage of the stronger, which he explains in a number of ways. First, that justice, meaning the laws that are in force in various cities, justice is always established for the benefit of the strong, the ruling class, the powerful, the elites, and for the exploitation of the weak, whoever it is who are ruled uh, in that city. Uh, secondly, Thrasymachus will define justice, meaning the following of rules or the obeying of laws, as something that only a sucker would subscribe to, someone who's naive. You're being taken advantage of if you are a just man. A just man is the man who plays by the rules, which are stacked against you and stacked in favor of the powerful. Justice is for the timid, for the sheep of the world. It's tantamount to letting yourself be exploited by the strong, clever, daring predators of the world. The men who are wise to the ways of the world, able to see through conventional pieties about self-restraint and reverence to the law, and who dare to just go after and grab up all the good things in the world that they desire. Near the end of book one, after Thrasymachus has accused Socrates of being a baby who needs a nursemaid to like come and wipe his nose, right? Because he doesn't understand the difference between sheep and shepherds and so on. Uh, at that later point, Thrasymachus comes out and openly affirms that what he's doing is making an argument for tyranny. He is openly arguing that the tyrant's life is best. Notice what has happened dramatically. Cephalus, the head of the household, was already hosting Thrasymachus in his house. Socrates showed up. Cephalus invited Socrates in. Cephalus withdrew. The head of the household is gone. Dad is gone. And it's just the sons and the young men staying up late at night with Thrasymachus and Socrates. And now there is a contest. Who is going to be the teacher of the young men? Is it going to be Socrates or is it going to be Thrasymachus? The traditional authority has disappeared or has withdrawn for the moment. And it's an open question. Who is going to form these young men? So, I think Socrates deliberately provoked Thrasymachus uh, without even speaking to him into the conversation. Uh, we've just seen Socrates convince Polemarchus that it's never just to harm anyone. And Thrasymachus's definition of justice winds up being all about harming others, taking advantage of other people, benefiting oneself by harming others. And Socrates has just taken Polemarchus, the vigorous and wealthy young man, the scion of the household, Thrasymachus's potential student, He's just turned him and convinced him to agree to this really unmanly idea that you should never harm anyone else. Tyranny is bad. You shouldn't be interested in it. And more than that, he has enlisted uh, Polemarchus in, uh, as his ally in defending this idea. But why would Socrates provoke Thrasymachus? Well, because I think there is this contest that Socrates perceives between himself and Thrasymachus. They are rivals, rival teachers of the young men 
who are listening to their heated debate. I suspect Socrates knew that the Thrasymachus was his rival when he walked in the door. Thrasymachus is a well-known uh, historical figure at this time. Thrasymachus is inviting the young men to follow him to gain the art of becoming tyrants. And we have reason to believe that these young men are receptive to Thrasymachus' teaching on tyranny. After all, that playful arrest of Socrates at the beginning uh, was a kind of expression of force against consent and force over reason of arresting Socrates and restraining him. I would add finally about Thrasymachus that if Cephalus embodies the traditional authority of the city and of its religion, Polemarchus embodies the sort of high-spirited, vigorous young men who are the, the soldiers of the city and the patriots of the city. Thrasymachus embodies what Athens has become over the course of the Peloponnesian War. Athens, the Athenian Empire, has come, if you go and you read your Thucydides, uh, Athens has come to openly express uh, a teaching in favor of tyranny. Uh, almost openly and then very openly behind closed doors. Um, there are Athenian characters in, in what's called the Melian dialogue uh, in Thucydides who essentially say that might makes right, who say that the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must, who say that this is the way of the world, who make a strange kind of natural law argument for the rule of the strong dominating over the weak. Uh, and this is something that has been expressed also through Athens's actions and just dominating its, its former allies and turning them into subjects of its imperial power. And so uh, the Athenian regime has drifted from democracy into imperial democracy into a kind of tyranny. Pericles himself, the great Athenian statesman, told the Athenians in his, his final speech in Thucydides that what you hold is in fact a tyranny over other cities. Perhaps it was wrong to take it, but no matter, it's unsafe to let it go at this juncture. So you just have to figure out how to rule others tyrannically and, and, and accept that. And so Thrasymachus sort of stands in for, for what Athens has become by the time this dialogue takes place and by the time um, Plato meditates on this, on this recent history. Um, and Socrates moves through and somehow cuts down all three of these embodiments of the city, uh, or embodiments of three aspects of the city over the course of book one, emerging at the end as the victor against all challengers. Um, I will say just two more brief things on this, and then, and then I'm going to be done with my lecture. Uh, one is that the shepherd speech, where, where Thrasymachus speaks about the shepherd, um, at 344a and 344e and 345, 344-345, this speech brings to the fore the question of the dialogue, the question that motivates everyone's interest in what justice is. Uh, having confessed that he is here to teach the young man to be tyrants, Socrates points out that the conversation is aimed at determining not a small matter, but a course of life on the basis of which each of us would have the most profitable existence. In other words, this conversation is ultimately about what way of life one should follow, how one should live one, one's life. Socrates arguing that the unjust man um, able to do injust, an unjust man able to do injustice is not living a more profitable life than the just man, and Thrasymachus inviting the young men 
to become tyrants. Final comments in this lecture. Socrates says on the very last page, wow, I really got ahead of myself. I was so enthusiastic about arguing against Thrasymachus that I didn't even de define my terms. What a bad philosopher I am, right? He says, I've just argued on behalf of justice and we haven't even defined justice. What are we even doing here? And so you think that maybe the dialogue could end here. It's one of these strange, short platonic dialogues that end in, in, in an impasse, in aporia, in perplexity. Um, it doesn't, of course, it goes on for nine more books, but there's a kind of incompleteness to the argument of book one. I would suggest, however, that there's a completeness to the action of book one. The action of book one has taken a full arc from Socrates entering the house of Cephalus with a kind of unsteady head of household who removes himself. Socrates, um, in a way, batting aside the heir of the household, Polemarchus's attempt to, to be the authority in the conversation. And then Socrates finally having this knock down, drag out fight with Thrasymachus, in which Thrasymachus is pouring sweat. And there are many passages where Socrates, the narrator says, it took him a really long time to sort of drag him over to this conclusion, but finally I did. He was not happy about it. Socrates wins the battle and the action of book one is complete. Socrates has become the ruler. Socrates is now in charge of the household and in charge of the conversation. It is strange because he immediately confesses having, having come into this position of authority that they don't really know what they're talking about and they haven't really made any progress except for the kind of negative progress of defeating the opponents. But there is now no question in anyone's mind uh, who the authority in the room is. It's not Cephalus because it's gone. It's not Polemarchus because he's allied himself and become a sort of servant to Socrates. It's not Thrasymachus because he's been shamed into silence. And he's going to be there for the rest of the dialogue, uh, but we're not going to hear from him very much. He's just going to be listening. He's sort of been tamed and made docile. There's a kind of completeness to the action here. Socrates has become the ruler. Socrates is now in a position to attempt his version of what Odysseus attempted in descending to the underworld. I descended to try to secure a return for myself and for my companions. Can Socrates secure a return for himself and for Glaucon and these other young men, Polemarchus and so on, uh, a return from the kind of Hades, which is haunted by the monster Thrasymachus? Having defeated Thrasymachus, can he somehow guide the young men from this, uh, from the Piraeus uh, up, uh, figuratively up to Athens? Okay, that was a lot. I believe we have about half an hour left. Um, and so at this point, is that right, Nicole? Do we go for one more half hour? Yeah, or or even an hour. Um, it's kind of up to you. Okay, well, wonderful. Great. Uh, at this point, I've said enough. Um, I'd like to just open it for questions, comments, concerns, complaints. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.